You have reached the Every Little Thing helpline. Please leave your message after the tone. Hello, my name is Kurt Anderson, and every time that I eat cheese, I wonder who was the first person to discover cheese? Because to make cheese, you have to basically let milk go bad, and then who decided, like, you know what, I'm going to eat this little lump of something, and then decided that was good, and I'm going to try and make more of it. Hi. Hey, Kurt. It's Flora. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Uh, what prompted you to go down this mental rabbit hole? I Well, um, when I got married and I got a real job, my wife and I started a cheese of the month club with two members, myself and my wife. And boy, were my eyes opened. There are so many cheeses. Yeah, there's a whole stinky world out there. Yes, craft singles. That's what I thought cheese was. And uh, yeah, I just kind of thought that cheese just happened. And I didn't think anything past that. Like, I didn't think how stupid that was. That's kind of how I feel every week on this show. Exactly. So we've been doing a different cheese every month. And that got me into the question of, like, who was the first person to eat cheese or make cheese or discover cheese? Do you have a theory? Oh, absolutely. Here's my hypothesis. I think it happened high up on a hillside in in Switzerland. High on a hill was a lonely goat. And a cow dropped some milk into a field in maybe its own hoof print. And then I think it mixed with all the stuff and the dirt and the grass and it baked in the sun. And then I think a farmer walked by and said, hmm, that looks interesting, and then ate it. Kurt. (laughs) I mean, I'm not the expert, but I don't see how else it could happen. What date would you put on this alpine fairy tale? It would have to be somewhere in the 14 or 1500s. Like the Renaissance. Exactly, yes. You have your Galileos and you have your mozzarellas. So, Kurt, we ran your question by a cheese historian, and he loved it. Yeah, that is the seminal question that you have to start with. How did this all begin? Who's the cheese historian? I am Paul Kinstead. I'm a professor of food science here at the University of Vermont. And Paul wrote a 225-page book, Cheese and Culture, A History of Cheese and Its Place in Western Civilization. It's a pretty compelling story that that cheese shaped large swaths of, of humanity. He is very serious about cheese. If he were a cheese, he'd be a hard cheese. Kurt, your guess is that the primordial cheese was born 500 years ago in Switzerland. Yep. You're off by about 10,000 years. Whoa. Paul says the story of cheese begins around 8,000 B.C. in the Fertile Crescent. Northern Iraq and southern Turkey today. And the history is a little bit murky because this is long before writing. There ain't no records. 
But we do know this. Cheese is basically curdled milk, and different things can do the curdling. Like, animal rennet will do it, but so will the bacteria that are naturally in the milk. In other words, where there is milk, there might be cheese. I like that saying. And apparently there was plenty of milk. By 8,000 BC, you have all the, the big three, sheep, goats, and cattle, all being raised for milk production. But here's the curdle in the story. Paul says at this time, most adults were lactose intolerant. And so what were the Neolithic people doing collecting milk when most of the population couldn't drink it? There's evidence that they were feeding the milk to babies to supplement breast milk. And Paul's version of the Alpine fairy tale is that at some point, some milk spoiled, and instead of throwing it out, some adventurous eater tried a curd. Yes, that's a hypothesis. Did cheese back then taste the same? It would have been very tart, very sour, very acidic, um, spreadable. Think about a goat's milk chevre. Have you ever encountered that in Cheese of the Month Club? Yes, I've had the chevre. So primitive cheese probably would have tasted like that. But when do we get the smoking gun evidence for cheese? That comes when people learn to write. Some of the earliest writings were about cheese. When humans gained the ability to make their thoughts permanent, what did they write about? Cheese. This is all in clay cuneiform tablets that have been recovered you know, from 3000 B.C. Lots of written records, and it was clear from the writings that cheesemaking was incredibly sophisticated. I'm going to sleep so well tonight knowing that my love of cheese is as ancient as writing. Well, I'm not sure your love of cheese is exactly like their love of cheese. Okay. Do you want to guess what the first cheese writing was like? I would, I would write a recipe down. That's very G-rated of you, Kurt. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yes. Oh, no. Where are we going? There's nothing new under the sun. Put it that way. Oh, no. You're going to ruin cheese for me. So we just emailed you a Sumerian poem about the goddess Inanna. Take a look. I cannot believe that we're about to have an X-rated conversation about cheese. Is that what's, what's going to happen? I would say it's more of a reading. Okay. It says Inanna Song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Here we go. <sighs> Make your milk sweet and thick. <laughs> um, Make your milk sweet and thick, my bridegroom. <laughs> my shepherd, I will drink your fresh milk. Wild bull, dumuzi, make your milk sweet and thick. <laughs> Let the milk of the goat flow in my sheepfold. <laughs> what is a metaphorical sheepfold in 3000 BC? <laughs> I can guess. Oh, crap. Here we go. Um, fill my... <laughs> Fill my holy, <laughs> fill my holy churn with honey cheese. <laughs> I can't get through this. Uh, I did not expect this call to go take a turn like this. Um, I know it's surprising. It really was surprising. Fill my holy churn with honey cheese. <laughs> That's it. That was really the capstone for us. That's when I stopped reading. That's incredible. That is, you know what? That just. That just confirms to me that you can't, you can take, you just, uh, I don't even know what to say. 
All right. Clearly from that reading, cheese is more to people than a delicious appetizer. It's revered. It's a symbol of fertility and life. Cheese gets tied up with religion. In Sumer, cheese was a, a common aspect of religious practice, of, of, of sacrifice in the great temples. In the mythology that gets written down to institutionalize the religious practices, these deities loved cheese. Cheese gets imported into religions all over the world. Hindu religion, milk dairy cheese is, is life, it's sacred, and Egyptian religion, milk is, is sacred, the cow is sacred. There's even evidence of cheese being used in rituals at Stonehenge. Maybe Stonehenge was just a cheese market. Wow. Um, so many questions. So I would love to ask, why, why is cheese so important that you would offer it to the gods or make it holy? This is how Paul answered that. Protein, fat, minerals, vitamins, calories. Cheese is life. Cheese is being stacked at altars and sacrificed to the gods because it's a superfood. By this time, most adults can digest dairy, and people have figured out how to preserve cheese. Didn't take much. All you have to do is salt and dry it in the sun. It lasts forever. Cheese is high-nutrient, high-calorie, portable, and storable. It was worth its weight far more than gold. <laughs> you know, it was, it was precious. Who knows what the world would be like if, if it hadn't been for cheese. So, Kurt, that is the deep history of cheese. Okay. Well, that, um, so how did we get from ancient cheese in a jug to processed cheese in a bag? There's no single cheese like the Vita, because the Vita is more than one single cheese. Your cheese petite is insatiable. But yes, let's skip ahead to the cheese frontier, the processed cheese section of the dairy aisle. I want you to be able to select your next bag of cheese with confidence. You can get really good processed cheese that's mostly cheese. That's Lloyd Metzger. He's a processed cheesemonger. So he works with companies to develop new cheeses, like he tweaks the stringiness or the meltiness or the cheese compression strength. Depress it down, and it's going to measure the force it takes to crush the cheese. So this is simulating if you have a solid cheese and you take a bite out of that cheese and how easy it is to bite through that cheese. This is simulating my mouth. This is exactly simulating your mouth. I cannot believe there are people who dedicate their lives to this. Lloyd's argument for processed cheese is that it can do things that no natural cheese can do. What other cheese can you make that nacho cheese sauce or queso from and have it melt and flow and have that creaminess that you want? And you can't get that from any natural cheese. But not all processed cheese is created equal. So labels that say cheese food, cheese spread, Cheese product have less dairy content. And if you want the premium bagged cheese, look for this. Pasteurized processed cheese. Pasteurized processed cheese. That's like a, that's Lloyd approved. Lloyd approved. It's primarily made with cheese and you can add a little bit of additional milk fat um, and a little bit of water and some additional salt. And then what are called emulsifying salts, typically sodium citrate. 
And these emulsifying salts do an important job. They hold the oil in the cheese, making it creamy when you melt it. Interesting. I've always seen, yeah, when you're cooking up cheese, I've seen those beads of sweat kind of come come up off the top of them. I've always wondered why that's happening because there's not, not emulsified salts. Yep, that's right. And so, like, you can actually look, if you're buying craft singles, they come in different varieties. Like, there's a top-shelf single. So there'll be a deluxe single that is pasteurized processed cheese. The craft deluxe single is the creamy gold standard of processed cheese with 10,000-year-old roots. That is what I'm going to think about the next time I unpeel a slice. I, I feel like I am tapping into an ancient power now. I mean, I can see goddess Anana soaking in a bath of melted craft deluxe singles. Fill my holy churn with honey cheese. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna stencil that on my wall in my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad that you committed this line by line to memory. I, I didn't do it on purpose. You just can't get something like that out. This is gonna linger. After the break, listener Judy has a question about what happens when you have a wasp in your shorts. We received a follow-up question about last week's episode, and I think you'll enjoy it. Hi, ELT. This is Judy from San Diego. Just listened to your Cicada Killer podcast, and I have a question. You said the wasp will crawl up into your shorts and sting you, but you didn't say what would happen when it got there. So do you end up being paralyzed and dragged off to a hidey hole to feed little baby wasps? Just curious. Thanks. Judy, I'm so glad you asked because this gives us an opportunity to tell you exactly what cicada killer wasps do if they get up your pants. This happens. It crawls up your bare leg and you don't notice it and it crawls under the shorts. Cicada killer biologist Chuck Holliday was available for this fact check. Well, I'm very flattered at your interest, particularly now that I'm retired and every day is Saturday. Quick refresher, the males can't sting you, but they will try to using their penis. As for the females... I have abused them in many ways. I've caught over 2,000 knocked them out with CO2, glued numbers on their back. I let them recover in my hand. They just don't sting unless you hold them down. You know, if one, let's say, got stuck under the elastic waistband of your shorts, then it might sting you. The thing is that when they sting you, it hurts, but not bad. They don't have any irritating substance like wasps and bees do that make it hurt. It's just anesthetic. And in It feels like a pen put in you, and then within a minute or two, it begins to go to sleep because it does the same thing to your nervous system that it does to the cicadas. It dulls it. It, For me, it feels like Novocaine at the dentist's office, and the finger gets buzzy. Or your upper thigh. And then it wears off, and it's as if nothing happened except there's a little red spot. So the sting is one out of five. For one is you say, ouch, what was that? And five is you lie down on the ground and scream for a while. We have wasps that do that. They're called tarantula hawks. Personally, I feel like having, um, being numbed a little bit. I've heard of worse things. 
There you go. I mean, you ask for it at the dentist's office, right? And then the rest of the afternoon, you're numb. Or in my cocktail. There you go. (laughs) Thank you, Judy, for the excellent follow-up. If you have a burning question you can't find an answer to, give us a ring. 833-RING-ELT. 833-RING-ELT. This episode was produced by Aaron Reese, Phoebe Flanagan, Kristen Clark, Annette Heist, and Flora Lickman, with help from Nicole Pasulka and Doug Barron. It was edited by... Ian Chillog and Caitlin Kenny, mixed by Dara Hirsch and Enoch Kim. Every Little Thing is a Spotify original podcast. I hope that wasn't too cheesy. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>